welcome to the Truth Ward Podcast with Dr. Olin Stubbs. If you have benefited from this podcast or any of Olin's books, we'd like to ask you to leave a review wherever you listen to this podcast or wherever you purchase your books. Now, here's Olin. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Acts chapter 15. And we've been doing a series on the moral law of God and the, the function of the moral law of God in the heart of the Christian. Um, and we're about halfway through. So I'm going to try to do a brief review. So for you newcomers, maybe you can see where we've been. So we started by saying that God started in the Garden of Eden with a covenant of works. Some people call it a covenant of life or the covenant of creation with Adam. If Adam was to obey that for long enough, then he would have secured his uh, standing with God. But he blew it probably on day one. And immediately, Genesis chapter 3, God introduced the covenant of grace where God would interact with him, forgive him. The death sentence would be postponed. And so later we see the covenant of grace being reaffirmed and even explained in more depth with the covenant uh, that God made with Abraham. And then the covenant of Moses, which we're going to talk about more today, uh, it's a little bit strange because really what God does in some sense is he sets the covenant of grace back in front of the people in a fresh way, but he also reminds them of the covenant of works. And so even though there was a lot of grace in the covenant with Moses, he also rubbed the law in their face okay, with, with three different types of law, the moral law, the civil law, the ceremonial law. We'll talk about that more in a minute. Uh, but when Christ came, Christ fulfilled the law for all his people. He fulfilled all the Mosaic law, all the moral law, all the ceremonial law, all the civil law, so that we can be saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. So here's the question we're going to answer today. What is the role of the Mosaic law and the Mosaic covenant now, today, for Christians? And this is a question that Christians in the first century were wrestling with. If you look at Acts chapter 15, remember in the very beginning, most of the people that were coming to Christ, putting their faith in this Jewish Messiah, were Jews. Uh, But then as more Gentiles started to put their faith in this Jewish Messiah, they had a little bit of controversy. Because the question was essentially, well, do these Gentile converts have to obey any of the Mosaic law? What about the really important parts, like circumcision? So look at Acts chapter 15, verse 1. But some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Skip down to verse 5. But some believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees, so some of them had at least professed faith in Christ, rose up and said, it is necessary to circumcise them and to order them to keep the law of Moses. And then look at verse 10. Now therefore, why, or this is James speaking, Maybe Peter, excuse me. Now, therefore, why are you putting to the test, uh, put, putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear? Okay, now, you all know the decision, right? You don't have to get circumcised to be saved. Praise the Lord. Nobody wants to do that as an adult. That would be bad news, all right? So uh, I'm glad that they came to that decision for many reasons. But what was happening here is it forced the issue of, of the Mosaic law with the covenant of grace, now that Christ has come and he's lived and he's died and he's risen. So we're going to go to, to actually flip to John for just a second, John chapter 1. But we're really just going to have three points today about the Mosaic Law. It was a tutor, it was temporary, and it's been terminated. Okay? The Mosaic Covenant for us today. It was a tutor, it was temporary, and it's been terminated. And I'll explain more about what I mean by that as we go. But look at John chapter 1, just briefly, John chapter 1, verse 17. A fairly famous verse. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. 
Now just pause and think about that verse for a second. Does it, if you just had that one verse and you just interpreted it in a very wooden, literal way, it makes it sound like, well, all you had in the Old Testament was pure law. And all you have in the New Testament with Jesus is grace and truth. But that can't be right. Because that would imply, well, then the law wasn't even true. Well, of course it was true. And was there grace in the Old Testament? Of course there was grace. People were saved in the Old Testament essentially the same way we are, by grace alone, through faith alone, in the coming Messiah. So what does this verse mean? It means that in the Old Testament, although we were saved in the same way, it was like law, in a sense, was rubbed in our face. It was more at the forefront. And was there grace in the Old Testament? Yes. But what happened with Christ? Grace became so much more big and beautiful and clear. John Calvin has a quote where he says, The Old Testament saw the gospel from far off, a little distant, a little shadowy. The New Testament sees the gospel up close and personal. Okay? And praise the Lord we live now where we get to see it up close and personal. So flip over to Galatians chapter 3. This is where we will spend most of the rest of our time. Galatians chapter 3. And we'll start by talking about the idea that the law, okay? And some, the word law in the New Testament, the hard thing is, sometimes Paul uses it and he means something slightly different. Okay, so you always have to try to determine from the context what exactly does he mean by law. But part of the way that he's using it here is the Mosaic Covenant. Okay, the Mosaic Law in all its forms, the moral law, the civil law, the ceremonial law. And look at what he's going to say in Galatians chapter 3, and let's start in verse 23. Galatians chapter 3, verse 23. Now before faith came, okay, the New Testament, when faith is at the forefront, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Now, in the Old Testament, Israel was the church, okay? But they were the immature church. And so some of you may have children, and maybe you got a little bit of money. This is probably not most of us, okay? All of us missionaries and pastors in here, okay? But some of the rest of you, you may have some money, and you may have some kids. You know, like, you know what? I'm getting close to death, and I'd like to leave some of my money to my children. But right now, I love my children, but they're idiots. And if I gave them a bunch of money, uh, not only would they ruin the money, the money would ruin them. So what am I going to do? I'm going to put it into a trust. And once they turn 25, they get access to it. You love them. You're committed to them. You're being gracious to them. But you're being a wise steward of how you share with them all these blessings because you realize they're not mature enough to handle and steward the blessings. And in a very similar sense, what this is saying is that the Old Testament church, so real regenerate believers in the Old Testament were immature because there was so much that was shadowy and they didn't understand. And the Mosaic law, in a sense, was protecting them until the fullness of faith could be revealed through the Lord Jesus Christ. A tutor in Paul's day was not the way that we think about a tutor. We think about a tutor, you got a kid that can't pass the math portion of the SAT, he keeps getting a 200, and it's like, that's not going to cut it, buddy, and you pay some pretty college girl to come over, and all of a sudden he learns math, all right? That's the way we think of a tutor. That's not the way tutors work back then, all right? The, the way that the tutors work back then is typically rich families who were sending their children off to these special schools. It was more like a babysitter slash mentor slash escort slash disciplinarian. Ensure that my son actually goes to school. Stay in the back of the classroom. And if he starts goofing off, slap him upside the back of the head. At least that's the way I'd say it, okay? But make sure that he pays attention to the instruction, that he pays attention to the teaching, that he stays focused, that he's listening. That's what so much of the Mosaic law was doing. It was humbling the arrogant, prideful people to say, pay attention to grace. Pay attention to Yahweh. Don't trifle with him. 
He's a good God. He's a loving God, but don't abuse his grace. Don't ignore him. Okay? That's the way that it was functioning in the Old Testament. And it was preparing, it was preparing the people for the coming of Christ. Think about this. When Jesus Christ first walks on the scene and John the Baptist figures out who he was, you remember how John the Baptist introduced him? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Now, if a man walked in the door right now and said, there's a guy in the parking lot and he's the raccoon who takes away the wrath of God, we would say, what? That guy's a nut job. Somebody needs to put him in the hospital or something. What's he talking about? But because the Jews had been trained, a lamb is going to take away our sin by thousands of years of sacrifice. When John spoke, it had meaning. It had significance. Now, a lot of them still missed it, but they should have gotten it. They should have understood who he was. Okay? So, so much of what the Mosaic Law was doing in the Old Testament was a tutor. It was preparing. It was trying to focus people on God, humble people to be prepared to receive Christ. It should have been obvious there were a few people that got it, Anna in the temple and a few others, okay? But most people totally missed him. And part of what that ought to remind us is just how sinful and stubborn the human heart is. How resistant we are to learning and really hearing what God's trying to say. The second thing, the Mosaic covenant is temporary. So go to, back to Galatians 3, look at verse 25. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. We are not under the Mosaic law. Aren't you glad? Verse 26, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So this was preparing us for the coming of Christ and salvation. It's been thrown off. Everybody flip, keep your finger here in Galatians. We're coming right back. But flip over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And you're probably familiar with this, but so much of Hebrews is a compare and contrast between Judaism and Christianity and why Christianity is so superior. And really, it's not just superior. It is the fulfillment of everything that Judaism was meant to be and pointed forward to. So look at Hebrews chapter 10, and let's actually start in verse 1. For since the law, again, the Mosaic covenant, has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, right? That little bloody lamb on the altar, that's a shadow, The true reality is the Lord Jesus Christ hanging and bleeding on the cross for us. It can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Could a regenerate, real believer in the Old Testament have a sense of being forgiven of their sins when they saw the lamb slain? Yes. But it wasn't as full and as deep as the cleansing that we can have by faith in Christ because we know more. We understand it more. Their, their understanding was very shadowy. Look at verse 2. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sin? So it's kind of like they walked away and there was still a deep staining effect, the consciousness of their sin. I'm going to have to be back here again real soon, offering another sacrifice, doing this over and over and over again. Verse 3. But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sin every year. Again, it's like the law of God, the holiness of God, and their sinfulness constantly rubbed in their face. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Okay? So part of what's going on here, okay, just imagine going to church in the Old Testament. 
Imagine going to temple in the Old Testament worship. There would have been so much of that experience that basically would have been screaming at you circumstantially, you don't really belong here. What would have you heard? Animals screaming as they got their throats cut. What might you have seen? Rivers of blood as all these animals are slaughtered in your place. What might have you smelled? Burning flesh. And that ought to be your flesh that's burning. What would you see? The fire. It partially represents the wrath of God that you deserve. So the Old Testament is kind of like God says, come close, I love you, but don't come too close, I might kill you. It's sobering. But we're not under that tutor anymore because it was temporary. It was for a time and a place. And the third thing is this. It's terminated. Okay. God, you know, the Old Testament's longer than the New Testament. It's the foundation. What was God trying to say? He was trying to say, my grace is going to be so radical and so good, there's going to be a danger of being intoxicated with it and abusing it. And I'm trying to lay a massive foundation about how committed I am to holiness and how much I hate your sin. But then I'm going to build you as my temple, as my trophy of grace. I really do love you. I really do forgive you. I really do bring you all the way in. So look at Genesis chapter... You know what? Before we go back to Genesis, go to Romans for just a second. Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, another fairly famous verse. Romans chapter 10, verse 4. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. That really is telling us two things there. One, Christ fulfilled the law for us. He's the one that ended it for us. But also, the law is pointing us to Christ. He's the goal. That's what we're supposed to be looking to. Now, back to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. And we will start in verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ Jesus have put on Christ. My identity is Christ. Okay? Uh, Wedding ring. Putting this wedding ring on doesn't make me married to my wife. If I dropped it and Eric ran up here and picked up my wedding ring and put it on, he's not all of a sudden married to my wife. It's symbolic, though, of my marriage to my wife. Baptism doesn't make you a Christian, but it's the symbol of you're in Christ. And so if you're genuinely in Christ, that's what Paul's talking about. You've put on Christ. You've been clothed in Christ. Okay? Um, you know, Luther has the famous quote where he says, in Christ... You're simultaneously, simultaneously still a sinner, but you're justified, you're righteous. John Stott says, what, what did God do on the cross? He made Jesus sinful with our sin, not his own sin, and he punished him. And then he makes us righteous, not with our own righteousness, but with his righteousness. Okay. Look at verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, this is not ancient transgenderism, all right? Despite what some people would like us to believe. But this is what this is saying, is that the Old Testament law made a lot of divisions between man and woman. Think about it. Man, men got circumcised, women didn't. Okay? Between Gentiles and Jews, there was only so far Gentiles could go into the temple. Slaves and free, all that. In fact... History tells us that Pharisees in Jesus' day, one of their favorite prayers to pray is they'd go to temple and they'd say, I thank God I'm not a woman, I'm not a Gentile, and I'm not a slave. Is that gratitude or pride? So what it's saying is 
None of that matters as far as my significance, as far as my self-worth, as far as my standing with God, as far as my identity, as far as what makes me who I am. The only thing that matters is I'm in Christ. That's why I'm here. I'm in Christ. That's what's significant about me. And then verse 29, and if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. This is the same covenant of grace. goes all the way back through Moses, through Abraham, all the way back to Adam. Now, I want to take a second application. Because some of y'all may be like, why in the heck are we even talking about this? This seems like a weird thing to have men's Bible study on at the fish house, all right? But a couple of things. It's important to know how to read the Old Testament. I mean, a lot of people read the Old Testament, and you got all these laws, civil laws, ceremonial laws, and you're like, what are you supposed to do with these things? I mean, is, is it send eat pork today like it was in the Old Testament? It's important to know. Civil law, ceremonial law have been fulfilled in Christ. They don't apply to us. Temporary. We're not under them. Praise the Lord. Eat your sausage, okay? And now listen, there are some people that try to still enforce the civil and the ceremonial law, okay? Especially the civil, uh, theonomists or what they're called, if you want a big theological word. Uh, we're not going to get off into that. We love them. They're wrong, okay? Hey, listen, let me just give you one practical evidence. The nation of Israel didn't exist from AD 70 to AD 1948. How the heck can you obey the civil laws of a nation that doesn't even exist? The temple still doesn't exist, since 70 AD. You, you, they're gone now. The Westminster Confession of Faith, I think it's chapter 19, sections 3 and 4 says, are there principles of wisdom that we can draw from the ceremonial law and from the civil law? Absolutely. Maybe about how we should set up our government. Maybe you don't want to eat pork because you think it's not healthy. Great. If I decide that I don't want to eat pork because it's not healthy for me, that's, that's wisdom for me. If I tell you to be a good Christian, you can't eat that pig sandwich anymore, I'm a Pharisee. Can't do that. I'm a legalist. Can't bring those laws back up, okay? But Christ has fulfilled them. Christ has fulfilled these laws for us. And then here's the main reason that I want us to talk about this. This is, this is the real, all that up to this point, it could just be a nice maybe little junior league seminary class. Here's the real reason. All Christians in different times and different ways still struggle with a pharisaical heart, a self-righteous heart. And let, and let me just try to make it real practical for a second. And I had this illustration written in my notes before I even came here today, okay? And I didn't know we were going to have the double-sized crowd. But I want you to think about the last time that you walked into a crowded room where you didn't know most of the people. And maybe it was today. <laughs> but maybe it wasn't today. Maybe you've been a regular attender and you're like, I know most of the people. The last time maybe you were on a business convention or something and you got to a dinner and you winked in and you didn't know a lot of people. What's the dialogue that you start having in your mind when you feel a little bit insecure? Some people walk into a room, they start sizing their bowels up, and they're like, you know what? I'm the best-looking guy in here, so at least I got that going for me. Makes me feel secure. A lot of us, we can't say that. We don't even lie to ourselves, right? We walk in, I say, man, I'm not looking very good, uh, but we say, I probably made more money than all these people in here put together. You know, there's other people, especially at the missions conference, right, that walk in and say, I may not be very good-looking, ain't got much money, but I got... I got more of the shorter catechism memorizing any of these guys. Usually in a room this size, all men, there's at least one guy that walks in and says, you know, I'm not smart, I'm not rich, I'm not good looking, but I could probably kill half these people with my bare hands if I had to. <laughs> that, that tends to be the guy that watched too many James Bond or, or Jason Bourne movies or something like that. You understand? But here's the point. We all run to something in our hearts about ourselves to make us feel more secure, better about ourselves at times when we feel insecure, 
when we get into the comparison game. It's, and it, guys, it's, you know this, it's lose-lose, right? If you play the comparison game and you feel like you're less than most people, you'll feel like a loser. That's not good. But if you play the comparison game and you feel better than most people, now you're arrogant. That doesn't work out in the Christian life very well either, and nobody will like you. I want us to look at one more story and we'll be done. Flip over to Luke chapter 7. I want to give us a practical example of this. Luke chapter 7, famous story. Again, probably most of us have heard it. Luke chapter 7, and we will start in verse 36. Luke 7, verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, speaking of Jesus, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table, and behold, a woman of the city, almost certainly that means a prostitute, who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table at the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, see, guys, this is the dialogue he's having in his own mind, just like we often do. He's playing the comparison game. If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Now, just pause. Pharisee lives in the town. He hears about Jesus, this famous rabbi, and he's like, I don't know. Is he really that big of a deal? I'll have him over for lunch. I'll quiz him. I don't know if he's really as great a big deal as he thinks he is. And then this prostitute comes in, kneels down, starts wetting Jesus' feet with her tears, wiping them with her hair. I mean, it's almost a little sensual. And the Pharisee's looking over there saying, real prophet, no way he's doing this. I knew I was better than this guy. Always dangerous what you think when Jesus is sitting right next to you, Right? I heard Matt Chandler talking one time. He said, man, if I was one of the disciples hanging out with Jesus, I would just try to, like, always be singing worship songs in my brain, right? Because you'll know at any point Jesus is like, hey, Peter, what are you thinking about, right? So that's what Jesus is going to do. Verse 40, and Jesus answering him, don't you love that? He's, he's speaking to himself, and then Jesus answers him. Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain Monday letter had two debtors. One owned 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house, and you gave me no water for my feet. That was common courtesy. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, another common greeting. But from her, from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, another courtesy, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, he's like, I know all about this woman. I know everything about her a lot more than you think I do, more than you do. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those who were at the table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Now, is Jesus in this parable saying, she's got a lot of sins and Simon, you don't have a lot of sins? That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is, she's got a lot of sins and she's aware of them, Simon. And you got a lot of sins too, even though yours might not be near as scandalous as hers. And most of the guys sitting in this room, our sins aren't near as scandalous as hers either. 
They're probably a lot more like the Pharisees. We just like to compare ourselves and judge other people and stuff like that. But if we're unaware of the sins, that's the danger. If we think that we have little sins, that's the danger. The Pharisee thought he had little sins. He didn't feel like he had anything to confess. So therefore, he's not forgiven. So, a couple last thoughts here. We still need not the Mosaic Law. We do still need the moral law. And that's what this whole series is about. Remember, guys, the moral law preceded the Mosaic Law. It started in the garden. It was, it's written on the human heart. The Ten Commandments. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, love your neighbor yourself. Because when Christians look at the moral law, it tells us how we're supposed to live. But part of what it also does, it keeps humbling us. It keeps reminding us, I'm not there yet. I may not be what I used to be, praise the Lord. But I'm sure not what I ought to be yet. And it ought to keep humbling me. It ought to keep reminding me and you in a very fresh way. I need to run back to Jesus on a daily basis and fall on my knees, if not literally, at least metaphorically in my heart, like this prostitute, and worship him and thank him. Because my sins, which are many, not just from 30 years ago before I was a Christian, my sins, which are many from the weekend, he's forgiven me if I trust in him by faith, right? He is my covenant. He is my righteousness. He's my life, my death, my resurrection. And so the moral law for a Christian, okay? The Mosaic law, all those trappings, gone. The moral law still matters, still has a place in our life to tell us how to live and to humble us when we don't live that way and to point us back to Christ. It can continue to be our tutor and remind us of even on this side of salvation, how much we still need a Savior, how much we need to rejoice in Him, how much we don't just need the blood of Jesus back then, we still need the present application of the blood of Christ today. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, You're so good. You're so worthy. I pray for myself. I pray for everyone listening. There would be a fresh sense of humility and brokenness over our sins, even though they are probably white-collar domesticated sins that really don't look that bad in the grand scheme of things, to us or to most people. I pray that we would remember how much our sins are offensive to you, the lover of our soul, how much they grieve your heart. And may we have more of a broken and contrite heart when we sin. But Lord, I pray that we would not stay in a place of self-pity and just wallowing in guilt and shame. But I pray we'd be like this woman. We would run to Christ. We would run to our Savior we would worship you, we would receive your words of forgiveness, of assurance, of peace, and it would motivate us to move forward for the rest of the day tomorrow with holiness, with purity, enabled and empowered by your grace. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this episode of Truth Wars with Dr. Olin Stubbs. We want to remind you to please leave a review for this podcast wherever you listen and to share this podcast with any friends or family that you think may be blessed by Olin's teaching.